So this evening I'll be continuing these teachings on the foundations of mindfulness from the Satipatthana Sutta in the Majjhima And I've probably said something like this before in the earlier talks I've given because it just strikes me again and again as I read and reflect, you know, prepare to talk about these teachings, how brilliant they are. What a, what a radical shift in the possibility or the way we can relate to this mind-body experience instead of being so engrossed, engaged in the external world and manipulating it to get what we want and push away what we don't want, the Buddha's reframing or turning to directly know and understand our inner experience of mind and body in relationship to the world. So it's not a turning away from the world, but actually shifting the frame of reference so that it is much more about our inner experience. And in the first foundation of mindfulness that I gave a couple of talks on, again, a kind of radical, you could say, or different, certainly, relationship to the body, to see the body not as a source of identification or struggle, but the doorway to awakening, to freedom, to insight, through these different practices and different relationship to it. And then in the subsequent foundations, getting more and more subtle, turning now to understanding of the mind and different aspects of the mind. And we have a lot of mind to look at, right? We have these big brains, these big human brains with frontal cortexes. And these, these brains are meaning-making machines, right? And it's what's created all of this for good and for ill, all the beauty and the tragedy of uh, the human condition out of these big brains and everything they're able to create. The Buddha wasn't so interested in that aspect, or certainly not interested in the, so much the content of the mind in that sense of certainly endless philosophical debates about the nature of the mind or existence or the beginning or end of things, was not interested in that. And he really saw that can get you into trouble. And when I read that, uh, I was reminded of a Robin Williams joke, bless his heart, um, American comedian um, who has a joke about Descartes, who's that philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am. And here's the, here's the joke. So Descartes walks into a bar. The bartender says, are you having a beer? Descartes says, I think not, and promptly disappears. <laughs> now, it can get you into trouble if you think too much about these things. What the Buddha was interested in is more the quality of mind rather than the literal contents, the quality, you could say, the attitude, the construction of mind and the ways that can lead to insight, can lead to wisdom and awakening. So through this simple yet profound practice of mindfulness, of knowing what's happening moment after moment, mind and body, what's happening and how am I relating to that, the whole of the path, builds on that. And in this um, foundation of mindfulness, a really direct pointing of how that can be liberating, just this direct knowing of our experience. So tonight, 
talking on the third foundation of mindfulness, citta nupassana, mindfulness of citta, which is usually translated as mind, but we usually gloss it as mind-heart because it includes both the, the thinking mind but also the emotional components. And we actually just went for a walk with Venerable Analeo, who's now scholar in residence at the study center, who's done some of these great translations of the suttas. And we asked him about this. Is chitta is better mind heart? He said, heart, heart is better, heart is better. But I noticed I have his translation, and here he uses mind. So I might go between both. But it's really helpful to understand that it does include both, that the sort of the thinking mind and the emotional content are all included in this foundation or in this word citta, so mindfulness of the citta. And we know the mind through it, through how it operates, through these mental factors that come and go. And so this section in the sutta, the, the kind of the first and the fourth one are very long and somewhat complex. The second and the third, very short, very uh, direct. This is what the text says. And how, monks, does one, in regard to the mind, abide contemplating the mind? Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. One knows a great mind to be great, and a narrow mind to be narrow. One knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable, and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. Knows a concentrated mind, concentrated, unconcentrated mind, and a liberated mind to be liberated, and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. So just this repetition. And then the same refrain, that we've had in the other foundations. In this way, in regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind internally, externally, and both, internally and externally. And in its nature of arising, passing away, and both arising and passing away. Or mindfulness that there is a mind is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. This is how one practices. So it's got a similar theme to the other foundations, but with this direct pointing to the contents of mind. And always that saving grace of a phrase, to the extent necessary. You know, if you're ever too complicated, don't know what to do, there is a mind. It's being, it's thinking, or it's feeling, or it's doing whatever. That's enough, mindfulness to the extent necessary. You probably used this phrase that Manindraji often gave, Just sit and know you're sitting. All of the Dharma will unfold. Just sit and know you have a mind, and that's enough. And so the practice that we're invited into here is to know the mind affected by these qualities and the mind unaffected or when these qualities are absent. And again, this emphasis on knowing or understanding, there's a wisdom to these contemplations. And the part of the wisdom is that they're conditioned states, constructed, arise, and pass away, like everything else in the conditioned world, in this world of formations. 
And so we develop mindfulness, so uh, starting with the more simple or direct experiences of breath and body to train the mind so that these more subtle or complex, perhaps even challenging experiences can also be known in the same way. Mindfulness of mind in the same way. Even when these states are strong, challenging and difficult, the mind can know the mind in this way, can know the states of mind. And it also points to this challenging teaching that what we are experiencing is not the important thing. It's how we're experiencing it or are we mindful of it that's important. And it's pointed to by this Um, repetition in the text of these pairs of qualities and some are wholesome or skillful and some are unskillful or painful or difficult. Some are developed and some are undeveloped. But what I love about this section and find so freeing is it's very non-judgmental. It just says, does the mind have lust or not? uh, Anger or not? delusion or not. It doesn't say beat yourself up for being angry or you shouldn't have lust or craving. It just says know this. Know this about yourself. It's This experience is either there or not there. I always remember Ajahn Sumedho, the American monk who founded um, the the Western, many of the Western Buddhist monasteries uh, in England and in the States, actually many countries. He would say again and again, You have to know greed to know non-greed. Or you have to know anger to know non-anger. So we shouldn't make a problem or be judgmental about having experiences of greed or anger. They arise, they condition things. And we actually have to have that experience to know what their opposite is. So it was kind of an invitation into the exploring of the mental factors of greed or anger or delusion or restlessness or whatever it is, we need to know them so we know they're opposite or when they're not present. And it really points to the power of this just recognition of what's happening and that mindfulness is often all we need. You could say the greatest purifier or a greatest ally is just this clarity of, oh, the mind has this quality at the moment. Very non-judgmental. Now there is a place, of course, for skillful means and antidotes and techniques, but that's the realm of the fourth foundation that I'll talk about this week, next week, sorry. In this foundation, it's just this simple clarity. Is this factor present or not present? Really very powerful. And within that, we can include the whole range of our mental and emotional life, from emotions, which are these strong experiences like greed or fear or anger or sadness, where we're really very, um, can be very overwhelmed by an emotion, can be more subtle too. It includes moods, which are more background states of mind, like being a little restless or bored or having a contracted mind, something that might continue over time 
in the background, whereas emotions tend, tend you know, these are all generalizations, but tend to, to come and go in their strength. The mood can persist more over time. And it also includes meditative states of mind, being concentrated or not concentrated, the mind having these capacities or different levels of concentration, um, being narrow or, or um, unsurpassable. And the invitation is to work with these, that these are a powerful avenue or a vehicle or frame of reference for our practice. As I've said before, the Buddha said that any of the foundations are sufficient in and of themselves to, be, to lead to liberation. So you could just take this level of working with the mind um, and it's said to be enough. But it can be a difficult object for us. We are so easily identified with and beguiled by our emotions, moods, and states of mind. So, and even and they, even though they can be strong, hard to get a handle on, hard to be mindful of because of that the way it pulls us in to the stories we tell about ourselves. So we really, you know, it's part of our practice is to learn how to do this. Really valuable. These moods and states of mind manifest in lots of different ways, and we need to become familiar with them. You know, they, they can be a kind of coloring in the mind, like a, a lens through which we're seeing, experiencing the world. They can come as thoughts or images, talking to ourselves, stories, um, pictures of, of things, of people. And of course, they can have a, a physical component. Um, perhaps sometimes really strong, sometimes subtle, but they often reverberate through the body and that can be a a really helpful way to get to know them. So there's the emotion, mood, state of mind. Then what we start to see as practitioners is there's how we're relating to that experience. And this in some ways is as important, sometimes more important than the emotional state itself because we can be aversive to the state, fearful of it, attached to it. We can be suffer, have suffering around it. We can bring some clarity and notice it's Vedana. Is it pleasant, unpleasant? We can be totally identified with it, creating a sense of self. This is who I am, the lonely person, the angry person, the sad person. Or we can be mindful of it. Each one of those ways of relating will change our experience of that emotion. And as we get more familiar with practicing with mindfulness of mind, chitta we start to notice this more. How am I relating to this? How am I holding this? Um, and see there can be layers of experience. We're often so caught by the initial presentation or the one that's strongest or most familiar. And we don't notice all of the attitudes or ways we're relating or habits of mind that are kind of propping up or perpetuating or creating suffering around a particular emotion. Uh, Saido Tejaniya will often say there are kind of layers to mindfulness. You're mindful of this and mindful mindful of being mindful of that and being mindful of being mindful of that, of these layers of our experience. It's not simple. If we, you know, and even though we keep saying keep it simple, the mind is a complex 
experience, right? With It moves so quickly, so lightning fast, and can include so much. I mean, we create the world through the mind. Sometimes we're not even aware of how we're relating to an emotion and how we're feeding it through that relationship by the story we're telling ourselves about that emotion and about who we are in experiencing that emotion. You know, you can be sitting there having something uh, disturbing you and mindfully be noting anger, 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 angry. And the very tone or note of the note, the, the way you're noting is actually feeding the anger and not allowing you to fully um, be mindful of it. And I spoke last week about what I called mindless mindfulness, where we think we're being mindful of, you know, the sort of the gross levels of experience and all of these thoughts and moods and emotions, often judgments are going through the mind and we're not paying attention. I gave my story last week of the ice cream and how, you know, I just really, you know, I was being very mindful of the sort of movements of eating and the lifting, you know, I was doing that whole practice and couldn't pay attention to all of the aversive and grasping thoughts that I was having. It made me think of a, often the aversive thoughts, the judging thoughts, a number of you have talked about working with them. It's so important and helpful to bring that into our mindfulness. But we tend to notice the ones that are painful, the judging negatively ones, even of ourselves and others. What I noticed on one retreat was I was really aware of those. It was very painful, really bringing them into my practice to work with. But there was a whole level of judging I wasn't noticing, which was the kind of prideful judging thoughts. Oh, you know, you're walking slower than that person or, you know, whatever we might end up judging about. It's kind of crazy what the mind will pick up. But I can remember having a yogi job where I was cleaning this main foyer out here by the front door, that whole section. It was a little more complicated back then. There was some tile and some carpet and a step and everything. I had to do different things. And just the amount of identification, you know, it had just cleaned it all. And someone would tromp through with that sandy, gritty footprint that uh, one brings in from outside, and there was so much like, how my floor, how dare you? But the main thing that I didn't notice for ages was I thought I was doing such a good job. I kept waiting for housekeeping, the staff, to write me a note saying, Sally, you have done the best job of cleaning the foyer of anyone, anyone who's ever done it. I'm still waiting for that note. It hasn't come yet. But that, that, that movement of pride, of self-satisfaction, of, of wanting to be seen, I didn't, it took me ages to recognize that. Because that was, even though there was some craving in it, it was a little more pleasant than when I would see so often the aversive judging thoughts. So we need to just keep paying attention, have our radar get more and more subtle and more and more sensitive, as I said, to all of these layers of experience. And this practice that one of our colleagues, Michelle McDonald, um, created called RAIN, I think we've talked about it before, right? The acronym RAIN, where you take the first, just like Bhante did this morning with space, which is such a great teaching. This is, I'll I'll repeat it even if we've said it before, because it's so helpful in working with our emotional 
experience, any experience, but particularly the emotion. So RAIN, first is to recognize what's happening. And so that's to give it a name. Oh, this is sadness or judging or fear or confusion. Again, scientific research has proven the power of just naming what we're experiencing to kind of bring some clarity. You could almost say diffuse, give one a sense of more... um, understanding of what's happening. So just the naming, the recognition. The A stands for accepting or allowing. We say, this is what's happening. Don't try to hold on to it or push it away. And then the I of RAIN uh, stands for interest or investigation, um, where we get a little closer, a little curious about the experience. I actually like intimacy because it uh, interesting, especially investigation, can have a kind of dissecting quality that sounds like a lot of doing. But intimacy means just, can I feel this? Can I know this experience? What is this? We bring it a little closer, so we're actually um, curious about it. And then the N stands for non-identification. You could say not self, not personal. It's not who you are. It doesn't define who you are. But I also like nature. It's, this is what the mind and body does in a universal sense, but also what, this is what this mind and body does. In this situation, in this condition, this is what happens. So again, there's that non-reactive allowing or acceptance of the experience. And I find this practice, if you remember to do it, helps us to land in the experience and as I've been saying, see the layers of it. We don't just stop at sort of the simple or the most obvious or the one that we most easily identify as our pattern. We get a little curious about what's really going on here. Again, not to do a lot of you know, investigation that the idea is you need to get to the bottom of something and there's something underneath it. It's not an archaeological dig where there's a treasure at the bottom. But just as we get a little closer, this more intimacy, it will naturally reveal itself. You'll see that it changes because that's the nature of any experience. So we, we track our experience. We get curious about our experience. I like this poem by Kabir. He's a 15th century Indian mystic poet and saint about the dance of our emotional life and looking through the layers. And he says, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold on to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe but I noticed one day that the cloth was well, ro- well woven. So I bought some burlap, which is very coarse material. I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my sh- left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving my greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Just this layering and this replacing, you know, we, we don't like this aspect of ourselves, so we push that away, but something else is there. Can we pay attention to that? It's not about rejecting, but it's about really knowing. 
And he could have used a dose of rain, right? What's really happening here? Can you just accept this experience? So to go a little bit through the sutta, even though it's short, there's a lot in there. What we're first asked to be mindful of is the presence or absence of lust, hate, and delusion, or greed, aversion, and delusion. These are our old friends, the kalesas, torments of mind. And they're really seen as the roots of all unwholesome mind states. So even though it's just this list of three, if there's any real difficulties of mind, this is, this is the invitation to practice with them. And so I love this um, pointing Is the mind affected by greed or not affected by greed? Because in the the teachings of the Buddha, when something is absent, the the non-arising of something, the absence of ill will, say, implicit in that is goodwill or metta. So even though it's pointing to the absence, say, of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of aversion, there's a possibility of metta. Or kindness, and so there is the positive in there, and it can. But it can be hard for us to notice absence, right? We're so conditioned to notice what's here. If someone took something away from this room that was here for the whole month or so we've been here, sometimes it's really hard to notice that, right? Until someone points it out. It's the same in our mind. We can be consumed with something. Um, And then something distracts us, the time of day, a meal, um, an interview or whatever, and that state just goes away, like the weather changing. But we're so conditioned to be on to the next thing, we don't take the time to reflect. Oh, I was consumed with irritation and restlessness, and now it's gone. This is what the Buddha is inviting us to to notice. And of course, the positive states too. You know, the mind was calm and now it's restless. The pointer is don't get identified. Don't try to certainly hold on to the wholesome states, push the unwholesome states away, but know when they're there or absent and know, and later James has already talked a lot about cultivating the wholesome and and really having that sense of inhabiting that and knowing that, integrating that, very powerful. But it begins with knowing whether it's there or not. And the same with the difficult ones. And so we start to see the power of mindfulness to diminish hindrances. It said the very functioning of samasati, wise mindfulness, is that it increases wholesome states of mind and decreases difficult ones. But it has to start, the mindfulness has to start with acknowledging that the states are there, whatever they are. So just this bare recognition, oh, this is anger or fear, irritation or sadness. Venerable Analeo said, the habit of employing self-deception to maintain one's self-esteem has often become so ingrained that the first step to developing accurate self-awareness is honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, and tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. 
As Joseph would often say, I'd rather see it than not see it, because not seeing is delusion, even if it's difficult. We don't suppress, it's not about judging or pushing away, but the beginning of this path of freedom is seeing when the mind is affected by these different moods and emotions that are ones that lead to suffering. I often teach concentration and teach a concentration retreat at Spirit Rock every summer and have done a lot of concentration practice myself. And what becomes really clear, if the mind isn't settling easily on the object, some hindrance or another is present. It can be very subtle, a subtle wanting, a subtle restlessness, subtle identification with the experience. But that's what the obstacle is. And so just recognizing that, not, again, to judge or blame, but this is what the practice starts to reveal. And the same with mindfulness. All of the things that are making practice difficult, we want to get curious about them. How are they functioning? What's our relationship to them? In mindfulness, in Vipassana, we can be mindful of those challenges, of the hindrances, of the obstacles, of whatever the mind is doing. And that then becomes the practice. It's not a detour or that we're doing something wrong. This is a really rich part of our practice. So it's not about resisting or resenting when this happens because of what we'd rather experience. Oh, this is in the way of my good meditation. This is the meditation. This is what the Buddha is saying. Know this experience of restlessness or contractedness or sleepiness. This is so important. And also to acknowledge and appreciate and inhabit the beautiful states of mind when they're present to really recognize those as well, the calm and the joy and the contentment and the well-being. So both of those. So in the sutta, we're invited to be aware of these different shadings of the mind, the moods and emotions. And again, it starts with, uh, I want to focus more on some that we don't talk so much about, some we already have, like the first one is greed, present or not present in the mind, or you could say lust or craving. Is it present or not present? I talked about it in uh, the talk on Vedana, where the teaching is when something's pleasant, our habit is, we're deeply conditioned, run after it, chase it, hold on to it, try and get more of it. This is what leads to craving. And then in dependent origination, the whole cycle of suffering, birth, death, etc., gets um, created. Bhante spoke this morning in answer to the question about the the brownie as a great example of of how can we um, enjoy something without having the mind contract into craving around it. It's a really important and helpful place of practice. I mean, if you look at it, the very purpose of a brownie is to incite happiness, right? The, the cooks don't put it out there to make you un- Maybe if you're gluten intolerant or something, it makes you unhappy. But generally, the idea of it is to bring some happiness, right? Well-being or joy, whatever you might say. Just to have something sweet as an offering from the cooks. So that's its purpose. You can't say that so much about the beans. You know, they're more there for sustenance, but they have a function too. But 
a brownie, we, you know, I think you don't need a brownie, right? You don't need it for the body. You don't need it for well-being. I mean, for, for the nutriment of the body. But it's, its purpose is to sweeten the mind, to sweeten the heart. So how can we enjoy that without craving? This is a great exploration. The difference is being mindful of it, right? Of seeing, you know, the, the seeing of the brownie and the taking of it and look, looking at the mind that says, can I get two or which is the biggest one on the tray? Can I look like that's just naturally the one that my <laughs> thing is descending on and not kind of going around to get the one behind? You know, you just look at the mind doing all of those things. And none of that is a problem if we're mindful of it, if we actually use it in practice. Next thing we're invited to know is, is the mind affected by aversion or not aversion? No aversion present. Carol gave a whole talk on that as the maestro of aversion. I'm sure she played that tune very well. And we all know that state of mind, right? But we can be so identified with it at times that we forget to notice when it's not there, when there's actually peace or ease or letting go or acceptance. And then the third one, deluded mind. We chose very deliberately to offer you Sharon's talk on delusion because I've noticed we don't tend to talk about it that much and she gives a great talk on delusion. Was it helpful? Yes. To really see this this way of being, this fog that we can be in, that can be just a whole attitude about experience. It can be really hard to work with. I remember Sylvia Borstein, who I often teach with, she was talking or teaching her grandsons how to meditate. And one of their main questions was, how do I know when I'm not mindful? It's a great question right? And another teacher I teach with, Richard Shankman, he would always ask the group, what's the practice for when you're lost? What do you do then? And you might sort of puzzle a bit, but the basic answer is nothing, because you're lost. When you're lost, you're lost, right? Until there's some moment of grace or something happens, some hopefully habit of mindfulness comes back in, and it's not until there is mindfulness again that you can reflect, oh, I was lost. And, you know, hopefully have some momentum or intention to, to, to be more present from that moment on, and then you'll get lost again. But when you're lost, you're lost, right? And maybe you'll have a moment of being aware and then you choose to be lost again, but it's not until you really are aware again that you can actually do something about it. And so delusion is really um, a very fundamental strategy. You know, we often say, or the Buddha says, the source of, of suffering is craving. And we suffer so much from aversion, from judging and hatred and ill will directed inwardly or outward. But on a deeper level, ignorance or delusion really is the source of our greatest suffering. And, you know, you can talk about it on an impersonal level, ignorance about the Four Noble Truths or the teachings of Dharma, dependent origination. But we all have our own unique flavors, right, of, of how that experience of delusion 
manifest. It can be some sense of staying superficial, sort of not doing what I've been talking about, about looking at things from different angles, seeing the layers, seeing the nuances. We're a little distant or disconnected from experience. Basically, anytime you're telling yourself stories, there's delusion happening, right? Because are the stories here, uh, you know, as your bank account or your holiday or your project at work, are they here? No, they're fabrications. Fabrication is just another word for delusion. When we're complicating things, spinning out these strategies and whatabouts and shoulda, coulda, woulda and all of that kind of thing. When we're unaware of our surroundings or our impact on others, just kind of going through, um, whether it's here on the retreat or in our life, without this kind of inner and outer reflectivity that the Buddha in the foundations is always advising us to do. When we don't listen to our bodies, when they're clearly telling us what they need or what care or kindness would look like. I remember a little while ago going on a quite an arduous hike with a friend and you know after a while of climbing back up this this steep hill I just said I need a break I need to get some water and to sit down and have a something to eat and they said no I just want to keep going just keep going and so they stood while I sat and drank and had something to eat and then we picked up and went on by the time we got to the top they were totally wiped out, exhausted, because they, they weren't paying attention to the body and what they needed. They were hungry and exhausted. So we need to pay attention. This is the opposite of delusion. Mindfulness, opposite of delusion. I teach a program, I think I might have mentioned before, called uh, the Dedicated Practitioner Program, where we explore these kind of teachings in a very alive way. It's very interactive. Um, both through exercises, community building, the teachings are interactive. And so we teach on on topics like this and the foundations of mindfulness and dependent origination. And so once I was teaching on dependent origination and I asked the students for traditional definitions of ignorance, um, which are the ones I said, you know, not knowing the Four Noble Truths or karma or dependent origination. So we, we made that list. But then what was their personal experience of delusion? And this in some ways was more interesting or perhaps more helpful. They talked about seeing it was when they were in denial or had defensiveness about experience or when there was an overzealous support of an idea, this is right and that's wrong when they were falling back into patterns that they knew caused suffering. Their wisdom was there, but they couldn't help themselves. When they were acting out of selfish perspectives, not selfless. And they felt that in the energetic expression of the body and contraction or frustration. When they were on automatic pilot, when they weren't really... um, open to their their higher values or the precepts or their their moral compass. For me, a big one, and it's often unfortunately only in retrospect, is when I look back at what I did or said and my thought, what was I thinking? You know, how could I have thought that that was a good thing to say or do or follow through on? Wherever we notice, we want to, to bring in. And this kind of reflection 
is actually helpful. I call it post-mortem mindfulness, where you kind of look back and see, oh, right, this and this. And I really fed that train of thinking, or I really got overwhelmed by that. And you you see it play out, and it's like, possibly there's now a bit of a red flag or a, a sense of knowing where that goes if you indulge. And so next time, maybe the possibility for more mindfulness. We can really see delusion as a protection. It's like a not wanting to know, wanting to push away, wanting to diffuse, not wanting to see the truth of things. And that's what I mean. Mindfulness is the ultimate counterbalance to that. Mindfulness is knowing what's happening as clearly and as directly, as simply as we can. So all of these practices are about coming back to this kind of clarity, these practices that we've talked about, asking, am I aware? What am I aware of? What's my relationship to that? That three points that Sayadaw Utejaniya will invite us to remember. The noting practice. If you're really confused, see if you can note something in your experience, even just directly in the body, but certainly in what's happening in the mind. Noting delusion is not delusion, right? It's mindfulness of delusion. Using RAIN, the recognition, acceptance, intimacy, intimacy, not personal. All of these are helpful. So from the Kalesa's greed, aversion, and delusion and their presence or absence, the Buddha goes on to these different more states of mind. Um, so one is contracted, and this is where the mind is, is kind of tight. It can, it can either be um, rigid or the sloth and torpor. It's just not, not an expansive, open state of mind. And uh, Greg Schaff, who often teaches uh, this retreat, I think he's coming uh, for the next half. I like his, he gives a a teaching sometimes, he calls the small mind meditation. Actually, tomorrow morning, Guy is going to do the big mind meditation. But Greg says, I'm not there all the time. I just have to recognize this is the small mind meditation. and That's okay. You know, that's how the mind is right now. And he talks about how he, you know, how many of us belong to the I'm not very good at this club, which I think we can all feel we belong to at times. But it's just recognizing this is what the mind is like right now. It has a tightness or a narrowness, a limit to it. He also, the Buddha also says to recognize is the mind distracted or undistracted. Now we know this one pretty well, right? The distracted or restless mind. I think this is so fascinating to start to observe. I really think that restlessness is the most pervasive and challenging hindrance for Westerners, that it's both the the product of and the cause of all of the other hindrances. Even sleepiness has a flip side in restlessness. At the beginning of the retreat, for most of us, it was pretty gross, right? Just sort of the jumpiness of the body, energy unbalanced, you know, the, the sense of uh, you know, getting used to the schedule and, and maybe sometimes feeling like you were jumping out of your skin just to be here in this, the, you know, the confines of the retreat. Now you might find it's a more subtle kind of restlessness. 
Restlessness, this is interesting, is one of the last fetters to go before full enlightenment. I don't have time to talk about it. I give a whole talk on restlessness sometimes because I think it's so useful for us to realize how pervasive and subtle it can be. This mind just making difference, making not okayness, not restfulness. We have trained our minds to be restless, right? We live in this constant alteration of um, the greed and aversion, wanting and not wanting, you know, movement and and getting action. Um, And so our mind's trained like that. Joseph Goldstein, he's got always these great one-liners, one of them is, distraction is the habit of the mind. We've trained our minds to be like this. So we can't expect to sit down and say, focus on this, and the mind's going to respond. It's going to do what you've trained it to do, which is to think about this and remember that and worry about this and ponder about that and judge this and fix that. That's what it's going to do. I call this sheepdog mind. You know, this is where we, you know, the sheepdog that's meant to corral the sheep. Well, the sheep are the thoughts. And it's like your awareness is like, you know, if you've ever seen a sheepdog, they're like almost quivering, waiting for the sheep to try and make a break for it. And as soon as they do, they're like out there running, running, and they bring it back, right? And then they're there, and then, but the sheep always make a break for it. And then they're, that's exhausting, right? If that's how your mind is functioning, somehow we need to find some peace there where the sheep and the sheepdog, the mind and the thoughts can all kind of calm down and just be okay with what's happening. Again, we've said it many times, it's not about not thinking, it's the nature of the mind to think, but we want to get a little curious about what we're thinking about so much. Again, another Joseph line, I don't know if I've said it before, nothing is worth thinking about. And that has two meanings, right? Nothing is worth thinking about. But what are thoughts? What, you know, if you really look at what restlessness is, yeah, it can have a physical component, but it's so much fed by the thinking mind, the agitated mind. What's a thought? A blip of energy in the mind. If, if, you don't, if you're not mindful of it and you believe it and you sort of land in it with, yep, this is how things are, there's your whole world, solid and impermeable. You see it for what it is, a few words or an image, something passing, beginning and ending. It can be as light as a wisp of fog. So even though thoughts might seem random, you know, there's a way in which, where did that come from? I was just sitting here minding my own business and my second grade teacher, you know, was correcting me about my grammar or something, you know, something I just thought in the mind. We don't need to know why these thoughts come, but they are lawful. You know, they're a karmic unfolding. So sometimes a little bit of reflection, this is more the, the, the uh, area of the fourth foundation that I'll talk about next week, but what we just need to know that whatever's unresolved will come up sooner or later, whether it's you know, deep loss and, and hardship trauma, or the, the littlest, you know, slight or letting go that we've had to do. 
it will come up. How we relate to that, our willingness to be with that, with the kind of skills we've been talking about, is what makes all the difference. Pema Chodron says the whole of our practice is learning to stay. It's sort of like the training of the puppy, right? Stay, stay, be with this, feel this, so powerful. And then the sutta goes on to descriptions of various states of concentrated or unconcentrated mind heading in greater degrees of subtlety. So greats, unsurpassed or unconcentrated and narrow. Again, you know, we're not here to get our jhana badges. You know, I got to first jhana or I had this experience or what was this experience and be able to tell it to people, go home. I tell you, they won't be very interested. Just <laughs> let you know that right now. But all of us need some degree of concentration, right? But all we need is enough access concentration or steadiness of mind so we can see clearly. So the hindrances are basically calmed down a little and the mindfulness can just keep revealing more and more subtle aspects of our experience. And we'll all go in and out of that. But this is, again, to know when the mind is concentrated, great, wonderful, and when it's not concentrated, that's just the nature of the mind right now. That are the conditions. The important thing about all of these states the positive ones and the difficult ones, is they're conditioned. It's what the Buddha says. They're there or they're not there. They arise and they pass away. The very fact that they're conditioned means they can be reconditioned, they can be supported and deepened, or they can be abandoned and let go of. They don't define who we are. They're not permanent. And research, again, this neuroscience research is is supporting this. I spoke last week quoting from um, Invisibilia, that podcast that explores, what do they say, the hidden forces that shape us. So they do a lot about the mind and mindfulness. And I mentioned this um, psychologist and professor, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's written a book called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And so this is another... um, take from Invisibilia about uh, Barrett's theory, Barrett's work. Barrett's theory holds that emotions are constructed, not innate. They're the brain's attempt to make sense of status updates sent in a process called interoception by various bodily systems. That raw data can provoke only the most elementary sensation, pleasantness, unpleasantness, arousal and calmness. Spoke about that last week. But then the brain takes that information and filters it through past experience, concepts that we've learned throughout life, but particularly as toddlers from our parents, to recast those rudimentary perceptions as familiar emotional states. Angry, sad, fearful, happy, etc. There's this conditioning that we've been talking about, mental formations and perceptions. Without those learned concepts, you wouldn't have the emotional reactions that always seem hardwired. And since what can be learned can be also unlearned, we all have a lot more control over, and therefore responsibility for, our emotions than we might think. On the plus side, we can each be the architect of our own universe, 
or at least of our own experience of it. On the minus, no two people can ever have exactly the same experience. In the world according to Lisa Feldman Barrett, objective reality is not really a thing. Certainly not in any way possible without mindfulness. Mindfulness hopefully reveals more and more clearly reality, but we really need to recognize how much we are shaped by this conditioning. But the very mindfulness of that, the awareness of that, allows us to change it. This is the radical possibility of these teachings. I've been reading a book by Shaquille Chowdhury, who's a Canadian who's written a book on deep diversity, and he's also a mindfulness practitioner, so it's a good bringing together of um, opening uh, our awareness to inherent bias and and, um, all of the things that create a sense of separation. And he invites us to notice personal contradictions. All of us display inconsistencies to a greater or lesser degree between our stated beliefs and how we act. Studies show that people who are able to detect, detect the contradiction between their intentions and actions are more successful in reducing bias. Meditators are especially good at this. Their mindfulness training teaches them to observe their thoughts and feelings without judgment, a technique that tacitly familiarizes one with such discrepancies. So it can really bring into awareness, as I said, these layers of emotional response, of bias, of, of prejudice, of, of aversion, of wanting, that unless we're aware of, are shaping how we respond. Until we start to see that level of nuance, we're going to be driven by our conditioning by our sankharas, our mental formations. So mindfulness is so powerful in offering this possibility of transforming that sense of separation, of making self and other, of creating difference. The sutta ends with knowing whether the mind is liberated or not liberated, whether this mind has opened to what the Buddha would call the unconditioned. Now you probably may relate more to have knowing an unliberated mind, but I think there's something helpful for us here to not underestimate or downplay the insights you've had or having, the level of freedom that you've touched here on the retreat, in your life, in practice, that in these times of the mind being free, of greed, of aversion, of delusion. There's a freedom in that that's liberating. And maybe we're just having a taste of it. Maybe the hindrances are kind of at bay. Maybe the mind has just drops in for a moment or two, or perhaps extended periods of time where there's peace or calm or ease or contentment. That's showing what's possible, that that's actually the true nature of the mind. And all of these experiences, the the good ones and the difficult ones, are just conditioned arisings that come and go. But there's a basic 
aspect of mind that has this potential for equanimity, for freedom, and even for liberation. That this is possible when we land in the present moment, know what's happening, don't resist what's difficult, hold on to what we like, but in this balance of mind, openness of mind, spaciousness of mind, craving and aversion, temporarily perhaps, but they have ceased in that moment. The mind is clear and bright, not deluded. We all touch those states. It's possible. This is where this practice leads. I want to finish with the words of Ajahn Chah, where he says, In truth, there is nothing really wrong with the mind. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods or emotions. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrows. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. The gladness, that gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. Really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. Just like a leaf, which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to these sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all of this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Just this is the aim of all of this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So let's just let the words settle into silence.
you for your attention. Time now for walking and then the last sit with chanting.